Thank you. Please be seated. <clears throat> uh, the title of this sermon is Jesus the Worker. Jesus the Worker. The issue of salvation and the issue of being right with the Holy God is essentially one of putting our trust in somebody else beside ourselves. And what we are looking at is Christ and his obedience, because that is our salvation. Our salvation is in him. We were at Ollie's the other day, and I ran into a, a young man named Muhammad, of course. He was uh, from Lackawanna, Yemenite Muslim. And I started talking to him, you know, about faith. What, what is this all about? And I tried to get him to see the difference between Christianity and Islam and every other religion has to do with the fact that our trust is not in ourselves, in our work, and how many prayers we make every day in such a way that has to be prayed, you know, using the Quran and all the rest of it. But it's in Christ. It's in somebody else. And he couldn't quite get it. He said it's not really fair. You know, it's up to us. Why should somebody else and his work benefit me? That was his objection. And, uh, you know, my prayer is that somehow he'll understand it. I gave him my testimony. wouldn't take anything else. But I have my testimony written out. I said, oh, okay, I'll read that. But here is the essence of Christianity. It is not about you. It is not about us. It is about him. And we, by faith, connect to him. And that is salvation. It's, and this is so critical. And once you've done that, you live differently. And it doesn't have to do with putting a little thing on your head or having some covering uh, as, a, as a woman or anything like that. It has to do with being a godly person who functions in every area of his life differently because he's aware that he's in the presence of the living God, the God who loves him, and he wants to please him. So this is the difference. I've been reading through the Old Testament as uh, my practice is, and now I've gotten to the place where there's all these regulations about all the offerings. Uh, everything is stipulated. What kind of animal for what kind of sacrifice? Is it a burnt offering? Is it a sin offering? Uh, what should be brought? When should it be brought? Where should it be brought? How it should be sacrificed? What should be eaten? What part of the body uh, can be eaten by uh, what needs to be burned? The priests? What are the priests to wear? What are the priests to do? How are they supposed to apply the blood when it has to do with the cleansing rite? All of this stipulation and detail, 50 pages of it in Leviticus. And I go, what does this have to do with me? And then I thought, wait a minute. I have a Savior. And he had to do everything perfectly. And that's what this is pointing to. This is telling me that the Savior I have was the perfect priest was the perfect sacrifice. And these are the kinds of things that we can look at and see, but there's all these other things about him 
that he had to do perfectly with the right attitude as unto the Lord every work, every moment of his life. And that makes this kind of special to read all this because I keep thinking about Jesus as I go through all those details. Now we're looking at Jesus in reference to the way he worked. Now all of you have worked. Some of you have your own businesses. All of us have work to do. We have done work. We have still work to do. Some of you are retired. You still have work to do. You have assignments. All of us do things. Every day we get an assignment. How are you doing it? As unto the Lord? This is the question that we have to ask ourselves. But we know the difficulty of work. We know how hard it is to function in a sin-cursed world where work now has this new quality of difficulty. Jesus was in the same world. And he had to obey the Lord perfectly in every single assignment, whatever was given to him. And he did. Hallelujah. What a savior. But let's start with looking at this reality that we were made to work. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, <clears throat> after his work of creation, you know, the six days of creation, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then in chapter 2, verse 15, <clears throat> the Lord gave, the Lord God <clears throat> took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care, take care of it. This is before the fall. He was given work to do. Eden was not a perpetual vacation. It was a place of work. Not with toil, but with joy. The kind of work that we sometimes get a taste of when we're doing something that is creative and we know that the experience is really going to benefit the world and other people and ourselves. In, and it, it is, there's something about it. We are becoming like the creator. We are taking what God has given us and making it better. We are called to be co-creators with God. We are called to be co-regents of the earth. He wants us to rule over this environment, to make something of it. He gives us the garden, and he says, now cultivate it, develop it, work at it, make it something better, make it produce something, create something. This is what we're called to do. This is called, the theologians call it <clears throat> the cultural mandate, invent, build, innovate. That is our calling. We are made in the image of God. And when you do these things, when you build things, or you, everything you do around your house, or in your business, or where you work, 
All of those things are, in a sense, you are being like God in what you're doing. You're being like God. You were made to be this way. Uh, This is uh, how some people have put it. Man was made in covenant communion with God so that he would be our delight. Man was to offer his work to the glory and pleasure of God. And in that pleasure, Adam was to find his delight. He was working the garden, and God was pleased. And there was a communion between the two. It was a glorious thing. And it didn't have any taint of sin. And it didn't have the toil that comes when the fall happens. Work after the fall, though, was still uh, for us to do, but it had a different nature. It had a different quality. 3.17, to Adam, he said, after the fall, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground to dust you will return. With the fall, work changed. There was work before the fall that was joyful. After the fall, it becomes a drag. It is difficult. You're dealing with sin, sin within you, sin within other fellow workers. You're dealing with the effects of the fall on the earth, Uh, decay, uh, resistance, difficult weeds all of a sudden show up in the garden. I mean, this is be- becomes a place that needs a lot more effort in order to make it produce. Uh, you have the tendency to idleness and laziness now that you feel. Uh, you don't want to work for this God anymore. You want to uh, work for yourself. You, you don't even think of pleasing God in the way you work. There's greed. There's a dishonest gain. All these things come into the world of work now, after the fall. And so work is not as easy as it was. It is now a toil. Some have written, work is not the result of the fall. It was, however, tainted by Adam's sin. God's created purposes for humanity to fill and form his world through work would now feature pain and frustration. Aspects of human work were twisted from dignity to drudgery. Human efforts to cultivate the earth, designed by God to be part of the joy of imaging him, became sources of frustration, pain, sweat, and sorrow. Another writer says, Work after the fall is not simply the creative work of construction and cultivation. We must now also push back against the effects of the fall. There are constant obstacles to overcome with the forces of entropy, disintegration, and decay constantly working against us. Yeah, so we still have work, but it's harder. It's more difficult. There's an opposition to us in our work. However, work is still considered, even post-fall, a virtue. It's good for us to work. And there's an expectation that we are 
to still be workers. Even though we're fallen creatures, we are still expected to work. Exodus 20, when it comes to the Sabbath, he says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The Sabbath is a day of rest. I'm giving that to you. You and your animals, fine. But you are to labor those six days. And so this is found all through the, the rest of the Bible in reference to work. You go to the book of Proverbs, there's at least 40 Proverbs on the subject of being diligent in your labors. This is an expectation of God. Uh, 10.4, lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. 14.23, all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. And so work is still expected of us, even though it's difficult. We are called to go out there and do the work. We are not called to just be dependent. Christians are admonished in this same vein in the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, make it your ambition to work with your hands so that you will not be dependent on anybody. 2 Thessalonians 3.7, this is about Paul. He says, we were not idle when we were with you. We worked night and day, laboring and toiling, that we would not be a burden to any of you. We gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now, this is a Christian biblical work ethic. We are expected to work, to do something, to with our talents, our abilities, our strengths, that will uh, bring us income, bring our family income, a care for other people that we're responsible for, uh, be able to advance the cause of ministry, donate to people that are in need, uh, be, with, uh, be able to do something with our wealth that will glorify God. Christians should work. And the quality of our work should be slightly different than the non-Christian. And that has to do with the attitude that we are working for the Lord. We are conscious of his awareness of us or how we're doing. We are trying to do our best not just to please perhaps our employee or just to get a check. We are trying to please our God. This is mentioned several times in the New Testament. One prominent one is Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So in other words, it's not just whether or not somebody's watching us, whether we're on camera. We have our God who is always watching us. We are always to be honest. We are never to cheat. We are not to do shoddy work. We are to give ourselves to our work and really do our absolute best with the gifts that he's given to us to magnify God in the way we work. It's not just doing the work, checking it off. It's the way we do the work 
All of those things are involved in pleasing God in our work. <clears throat> Think about yourself over the years and all the jobs you've had. I go back to the first job was, I mean, of course, in the, in the family, clean up your room, you know, mow the lawn. On and on, from that point on, there's been work to do. Go to school, do your assignments, uh, uh, bring in this on time, uh, do these work, this work at the restaurant. Uh, I was a dishwasher, uh, wash those pans. I mean, till you know, sweat coming pouring off of you. Working in construction in uh, Central Florida in the middle of summer. Uh, on roofs and doing this stuff with cement and on and on and on, the work I've had to do over the years. I think about all of those opportunities. I never did it as unto the Lord. I did what I could to get by. And sometimes I would slough off. I mean, think about yourself and all the ways in which you have not really worked as unto the Lord in such a way that you could say now that was pleasing to God. But there is somebody who did every time he was called to work. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect worker. Every single job he had, and remember, he started his ministry at the age of 30. So for 30 years, he worked in other ways, in other venues than ministry. And in all of those things he did, he had exactly the right attitude before God. He was, even, he was aware of God. I wasn't even aware of God before you know, I became a Christian. I mean, I didn't you know, give him much thought. I mean, sure, I went to church and I thought he was, I guess, there. But I, not, I wasn't, in a sense, thinking in terms of, wow, he's watching me now. That came later, but essentially, think about your work versus Jesus' work. Christ was perfect in all his work, John eight twenty nine, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. He always does what pleases God. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now think about Jesus in his pre-ministry labors and work. Remember, he was a carpenter or a tech technon, a person who worked with his hands, who was a craftsman of some kind. Uh, he worked and labored in that way. But, you know, besides that, think about him at the age of 12. We see this little glimpse of him talking with the teachers in the temple and amazing those teachers in reference to the amount of knowledge that he had of the Bible at the age of 12. Now, how did he gain that knowledge? <clears throat> this was not some sort of divine gift that automatically he had, just like he didn't come out of the womb speaking like an E-trade baby. <laughs> no, he had to learn as he went along. He grew. And he had to study. He had to memorize in order to be able to have this knowledge, even at the age of 12. But then when he gets to his ministry, think about <clears throat> how much knowledge he has of the Bible. 
Where did he get this knowledge? You have to study to get this knowledge. Now think about it. Uh, based on <clears throat> an analysis of various researchers, <clears throat> Jesus explicitly quoted the Old Testament about 78 times. That's just what we have recorded, of course, in the Gospels. 78 times he quotes a verse right off the top of his head. To the devil, remember, he quotes these verses, and he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. He lived that way. Uh, there, the allusions and the references to the Old Testament increase to the number of between 250 to 400 different references to the Old Testament. Now, how do you get that kind of knowledge of the Bible? I mean, again, it was not automatic. He had to be a, he was a human being. He functioned like us. He was fully human. I mean, he was fully divine as well, but those, that was sublimated, if you will, when it came to his living out the Christian life or the life of a godly man. He did it as unto the Lord in his human nature. He had to memorize. You know how hard it is to memorize? You've probably all memorized a verse or two. Or you have to memorize a whole list of names or something for a test. Study is not necessarily easy. Uh, academic work is just as challenging as labor. Sometimes it's harder. It is uh, a matter of concentration, focus, allowing yourself to absorb the material memorizing it, getting it in, going over it again and again and again. Jesus did this. This was part of his labor, his work. Uh, people who get you know, degrees and write these books and everything, you think that's easy? That is labor intensive. You all went to college, most of you. You all went to high school. You know the labor involved in writing a paper or preparing for a test. Jesus had this. He worked at this. And he did it well as unto God, perfectly. That's some of his labor. Then you think about his craft, using that craft, going to work with other people around. Well, he had Joseph. He had all of his brothers. He had other people that he was working with. But in every one of these situations, he worked as unto the Lord with perfect submission to his God, with perfect relationships with the people around him. Uh, he was perfectly honest. When somebody asked him to do something, he did it. He did what he said he would do. He was a person who worked perfectly. It's interesting that eight of the 38 parables that Jesus taught have to do with work, or the work-a-day world. Think of a few of these. The unjust steward who abuses his workers. Some of these parables you'll remember. The dishonest manager who wasted his employer's funds. Uh, the laborers in the vineyard upset at their wages because some were hired later and got the same wage as those hired earlier. The stewardship parables that have to do with the talents in the minas. One buries them. And what does Jesus say? You lazy and wicked servant. 
in his parable. Well, the others multiplied what they were given. Uh, the evil tenants of the vineyard who abused those who were sent for the produce. Where, do, uh, where did Jesus get all these pictures in his mind? I mean, he just, he experienced it. He experienced these things. He watched these things happen around him. He was aware of what it is to work. He was a worker. He was not somebody sitting in an ivory tower somewhere just meditating. No, he worked. And he saw the workaday world. But in everything he did, he did it perfectly. He did it without flaw. I think about performance reviews. You ever had to go through performance reviews? All of you, probably at some point, and you sit there and your boss, he's probably just as you know, upset about this as everything else because it's so hard to analyze somebody in their work unless there's some specific thing he's supposed to do, but even then the quality of the work is hard to examine and all the rest of it. Oh, well, Jesus had a perfect performance review on every assignment from the one who really matters, the Father. And he had to do this or else he'd be a, a, a flawed lamb. He'd be a sacrifice that would not be sufficient to cover our sins. He had to work perfectly, and he did. Now think about during his ministry, how hard Jesus worked, how involved he was in his work. And this was difficult work. He was dealing with opposition almost from the very beginning. Here, for instance, the first day of his ministry, as recorded by Mark in Mark chapter 1, he goes to Capernaum and speaks and teaches in the synagogue in Capernaum. And while there, a demon-possessed man comes up and he casts out the demon. Then we are told, same day, he goes to Peter's house and we find that Peter's mother-in-law was sick and he heals her that same day. Then, that same night, they brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. And he healed them all. That's that same night. This is just the first day of his ministry. And now he's got three and a half years, or whatever it is, nobody's absolutely sure. But during those next three years, let's say, every day is kind of like this. Uh, this is his travel. You know how much they consider that perhaps in his walking around in all the different places that are recorded in the Gospels, he traveled 3,000 miles on foot. Uh, Forrest Gump, remember Forrest Gump? I mean, travel on foot. There he goes, there he goes, constantly moving. He taught hundreds of sermons, hundreds and hundreds of times. He healed thousands and thousands of people. Usually, individually, he heals this one, then he heals this one. Sometimes he healed two or maybe those ten lepers, you know, from a distance. But usually, it's an interaction with people. This is a working man. You talk about ministry and working, what it was like. For Jesus, it was a continual work environment. Now look at the last public day of his ministry. 
The last day we have on Passion Week, Tuesday, think of the events that took place on that one day, the interactions with people. Uh, first of all, we have the challenge of his authority by the religious leaders. Then he gives the parable of the vineyard, another parable of the marriage feast. Then he gets challenged in reference to taxes, whether you should give taxes to Caesar. Then he's challenged by the Sadducees in reference to the resurrection. This is all on the same day. Then someone comes and asks him, what is the greatest commandment? Then he gives the teaching about being the Dave, David's Lord. Then he has this long rebuke that's recorded in the Bible of the scribes and Pharisees. You know, those woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. He goes through that. It's long uh, recorded in, this, in the Gospels. Then you have the Olivet Discourse. Same day, he's out on the mountain. He's talking to the disciples. And he's giving this long discourse regarding the end times. Then there's another parable, the parable of the fig tree. Then there's the parable of the ten virgins. Same day, then the parable of the sheep and goats, Matthew 25. This is a busy man. This is a working man. This is a man who uh, poured himself into whatever assignment it was for, that God gave him. Some people think of Jesus as sort of like a hippie. Kind of a roving guy, you know. Hey, dude. Uh, you know, Tim Leary. Tune in. Uh, drop out. Hang out. Smoke pot. Woodstockism. That was Jesus. He, Jesus is just all right with me. You know, that, that's not Christ. Jesus was a worker. Jesus poured himself into whatever it was that God gave him to do. 100% perfectly done. And he did this in order for us to have a perfect Savior. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. God gave him this work to do, and he completed it. And that includes all the labors of his life, not just simply dying on the cross, now I say simply, that's the culmination of his giving of himself to the Father in perfect obedience. But all the other work that he had to do was given by the Father as well. And he did it perfectly. What a Savior we have. Well, what are some of the conclusions we can make from this? First of all, uh, all of us, all of us are called to work. Uh, we are in a society now where a lot of people don't want to work. They, they don't have to work. Uh, they're talking about a guaranteed income now from the government. Well, it's not really from the government. It's from taking it from other people. You know, uh, I saw that 1% of the population pays 47% of the taxes. One, the, the top 1%, 40% of the taxes. So it's, not, it's money the government doesn't make but nevertheless, people don't want to work. Here's uh, one study I saw, 2022. 25% of prime working age people, 25 to 40, 54, are not working. They're not working. And when they're asked, why don't you work? 
70% of them say, I just don't want to work. That's all there is to it. Well, of course you don't want to work. I mean, everybody wants to just lean back. But really? I mean, are you really getting the benefit of just leaning back on somebody else? Well, yeah, they look at it that way. But, you know, that's not godly. It is not godly. It's not right. You are made before God to work. And these people are going to be held accountable for their slovenly life. Just allowing other people to take care of them. For no good reason. I mean, there are people that are disabled, and there are sometimes they can't work. You need, and I need, to repent, perhaps, of our sloth, our laziness, our pleasure-seeking, the wasting of opportunities, partying all day long in college as opposed to studying, not doing assignments, cheating on assignments. All of those things, you think about it, that we were still expected to do before God, they're sinful just as much as any other kind of sin. How many times did you cheat your employer? How many times as an employer did you cheat or expect more of your workers or not be uh, compassionate to your workers? I mean, think about all the ways that people violate the laws of God and the standards of God in the workplace. We are called to work. Number two, we need to trust in this Christ, the perfect worker, for our standing before God. Because as you contemplate your own work, you realize you have not reached this standard of excellence that he expects of us, but Christ has. This is the thing that Mohammed in Ali's could not get. But this is indeed the essence of Christianity. The righteousness of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the perfection of Christ in his work and everything else is imputed to me, given to me. I can claim it as mine. This is the Christian understanding. This is the Christian gospel. Romans 3.21, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Adam sinned and failed and his failure was imputed to us. And we come into the world with that sin on us. David wins against Goliath and the entire people win. He was the champion who went out before them, representing them. He was the representative head. Now we have a new representative head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And his victory is our victory. Uh, you think of the Chiefs and their celebration, uh, you know, the football team, the Kansas City Chiefs, and all those thousands of people that were at that rally to celebrate. They didn't play the game. Someone played it for them. But they enjoyed the blessing of the honor of the win. This is maybe a little picture of what it is. Christ has won. He's obeyed for us. And that is imputed to us. It's put to our account. Don't listen to the voices that tell you you are a lousy parent. You failed in your marriage. You are fired. I got fired once. <laughs> I'll tell you about it sometime. 
It's interesting. Uh, you have a bad review. You're not getting a raise. Uh, you, uh, you are not satisfactory. On and on you hear these voices about from other people, relatives, people around you in reference to your performance. Listen to this voice. The voice that God gave to Jesus when he was baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if you're in Jesus, he's saying it to you. You are my beloved son or daughter in whom I am well pleased because you are hiding in Jesus. You're hidden in Christ and in him you are beloved of the Father. That song I wrote is applicable. O God, in myself, I have not an acceptance, not in the things I have done or will do, but only in Jesus, the dearly beloved. It's only in him I have an acceptance with you. Accepted in him, accepted in him. Although I'm sinned, I'm accepted in him. More beautiful words to my soul can't be spoken. Here's the verdict. I'm accepted in him. And then finally this. Let's live our lives as if every single thing we are called to do is an assignment from Jesus, from God, from our Father. And I, I think about, you know, like when you go to college, you get a degree, but in order to get the degree, you've got to take a course. You've got to take a bunch of courses. And in order to get through each course, you have all these assignments Think about your life as a whole bunch of assignments from God. No matter what the situation that you need to do as unto him with a certain attitude of, I'm doing this for you. I, I thank you that you love me. Uh, I'm hearing your voice. I'm going to be faithful for you, for your sake. Work hard at whatever you're doing. Work at it knowing that it is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I worked harder than all of them, that is all the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. That means that the Holy Spirit was in him, the grace of God was in him, helping him do whatever you're called to do. So look at your life and say, this that I'm doing, whatever it is, it could be just you're working around the house, you're trying to fix something, you're trying to make something work, you're cleaning something up. Consider an assignment from God. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. No thing is insignificant. Ask God right now, okay, what is my mission? What is my mission? And it changes every moment or every few hours. What is my mission? Do it for him. Let's pray. Lord, we hear this and we think about Christ and the glory of his perfect obedience. Help us to always have that uppermost in our minds. And then in light of that, as we want to be like Jesus, we want to follow in his footsteps. Help us to be people that work as unto you, even as he did. And we praise you, Father, that we can repent of our sins, acknowledge our weakness, our failures, and look to Christ and know that we can be totally forgiven and right with God. And we pray, Lord, that you'll just give us that attitude as we 
do the work that you assign us. We ask for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.